Hi, I'm sitting here with the lovely Shalina. And I'm sitting here with the lovely Neka. Welcome to What's Your Safe Word? A podcast about declarations of resistance by us, Women at the Center. So, what are you drinking? I am drinking Sandbanks Riesling Gutstraminer, and it's a 2018 BQAA, BQA, Ontario wine. What are you drinking? Well, first of all, I want to applaud you for purchasing Ontario wine and contributing back to the economy because I am not. I am drinking an Argentinian swill called Pascal Tosso, which is a 2018 Chardonnay. And um, I don't know. I don't know people. I don't know. (laughs) I love Chardonnays, but I don't know. You're going to give it a try. I will give it a try. All right. Shall we start with our check-in? Let's do that. Okay. Um, We can start with mental noise. Uh, My, I don't really have any personal mental noise right now. This week has been a lot of doing work, but because it's my deadline has been met, I've handed my portion in, I feel relieved. So it's not really mental noise. But I did see in, um, I saw on social media that in Toronto, there's a whole bunch of landlords that are trying to evict people uh, during COVID-19. And, I actually saw a lot of those tenants go to the landlord's mansions in Toronto and pick it on their front lawn. And so I thought that was like pretty incredible. I know it's not my mental noise, um, but I understand that it's a lot of people's during this time about how they can afford housing, how they can afford their rent or their mortgage. And I know that banks are being a little bit more, um, giving more leeway, right? Giving more time to do mortgage payments. Um, But sometimes landlords aren't. And although there is a rule that you're not supposed to be evicting anyone, it's still happening. And I know even Rob Ford, like said the other day that he was going to come down on landlords that were doing that. And so anyway, to see like that act of like civil disobedience and that act of like gathering together and going to these landlords' mansions to like, you know, give them a piece of their mind. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, it's so brilliant that you're raising this because this week I've had a little bit of a fracas with our commercial landlord. So we've been out of the office since I think May, uh, sorry, March the 4th, first week of March. Mm -hmm. And they have been collecting rent. They've been banking our checks, March, April, and May. And her age, the landlord's agent had the audacity to continue to harass me and be demanding that we continue to pay full rent for our office space, even though we haven't been there for three fucking months. Yeah. So actually yesterday, this is not my mental noise, but I'm glad you said this, but yesterday she and I had a little bit of a a to-do as my dad used to say, we had a to-do over the phone where she was saying, I don't believe you call yourself a lawyer and you don't understand your legal obligations. So I said, I call myself a lawyer and I will teach you about act of God, force majeure, actually. Let me tell you. And so I went in. Good for and, you. Yeah, but then I hung, actually, I hung up the phone on her and told her she was being ignorant. And anyway, 
so yes there are lots of landlords who did not get the memo from Trudeau or from Ford and yeah. are still insisting that people whether it's commercial or residential uh, still pay them because they are money grubbing capitalists anyway that was not my mental noise but having said it it really is my mental noise which like yours didn't really exist until yesterday when our lovely, lovely, lovely colleague, um, Kara, sent us a text that her partner, Tirado, and our delicious little CEO in training, Giovanni, had been involved in a car accident. And before anybody panics, like the rest of us did, they're, they're fine. The car is a total write-off, but they're fine. But I was so, <laughs> so, I was so panicked. Mm -hmm. And my my chest was tight. So Kara just sent this text. Gerardo and the baby had been involved in a car crash. Everything is fine. And then I responded, what do you mean everything is fine? Respond quickly. What are you waiting for? So I was bombarding her with these texts. And Amanda and Nicole were saying, you know, lovely, supportive things like, let us know what you want us to do. Let us know what you <laughs> And I'm, I'm sending off these texts about where the fuck are you? Why are you responding? Well, to be clear, I was feeling that. I just was like, NECA's got that front. I will take another route. <laughs> and then I felt, I felt horribly because after a quick minute, I thought, NECA, this is not about you. Yeah. It, was, it was one of those... You know, um, I called myself up. It wasn't a call out or call in. I called myself up and said, uh, hello, Neka, sit down. <laughs> this is not about you. And so I had to send Kara a, a sort of a private message, sort of apologizing and taking accountability for, for adding to her obvious stress by yeah. demanding. And luckily she sent us this absolutely adorable video later on in the evening of little Giovanni laughing at life giggling you know just being the perfect little human being that he is and showing that everything is fine so but up until i saw that video i was still stressing and again sort of understanding that life is so transient anything could happen at any time so it just calls upon us all to enjoy and be grateful and be thankful which leads me actually to my gratitude right if you don't mind me going there i do not Thank you very much. My gratitude is to Kara because I think about the, every time she sends a picture or a photograph of her son, how all of us, Shirley, Amanda, Nicole, Shirley, all of us, we, we gush, we live our, our baby, sort of baby wanting lives vicariously <laughs> <laughs> through her and her little, little guy, who is honestly the most perfect human being that I have seen in all of 2020, ever. Well, not ever, because I have three perfect 20 <laughs> perfect human beings. But in the whole of the last, I don't know, five years, I would say the little Giovanni Jones-Reed is the most perfect human being. So I'm very, very grateful to Kara Jones for sharing her little son with all of us. That's my guess. Me too. He, honestly, the cutest baby. Um, my gratitude is, okay, personally, Smalley, 
Molly. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I like the support. Um, so personally, my gratitude is the fact that I got a Fitbit. Um, I don't know, a couple, like maybe a week ago now. And I, I actually very much enjoy it. I'm super into like what my sleep pattern is. And it tells me like how much REM sleep I'm doing, how much deep sleep, how much whatever. And like Chris actually woke me up this morning uh, when he got home from a night shift to rub coconut oil on him because he got burnt yesterday. And I was like, you're ruining my sleep score because... <laughs> Because you woke me up, and so now that's my sleep score is gonna go down. And he was so confused. <laughs> I think it's creating a little bit of a sleep monster in me. But anyway, um, I Chris had made me go on Amazon to pick out bands, like different bands for it, and I picked out um, like some uh, like active bands, and then I also wanted like a nice band that I could have whatever. And so I just picked out like a $20 one, um, that was kind of like rose gold and like, it was just nice. Anyway, he, they came in the mail the other day and he actually didn't get the one I picked. He chose one that was like $70 and as a surprise because he wanted me to like have a really nice one. And he read the reviews on the one that I chose and he was like, Oh no, it's too clunky. Like she won't like it. And so he got me this like, Ooh. I noticed yeah. it earlier. I was going to comment on your new band. That's so funny. Yeah, and, <laughs> wow. and it like matches my, I just, I really like it. So yeah, it's like super, I don't know. I'm just like, I, it was a very nice surprise. And mm. he, I love when he's like, like gifts is not my love language, but him thinking about me is my love language. And so yeah. I love that like that was shown. So that, that's like my personal gratitude. My other gratitude is I follow a bunch of people, I'm sure like everybody on uh, Instagram and social media. I follow um, a woman, her name is Sarah Nicole Laundrie. She goes by the Bird's Papaya. Uh, she has become like an advocate in recent years for like self-love and body positivity and things like that. And she was called out this week by um, a younger woman um, in a fat body, uh, a woman of color who said like body positivity and this space shouldn't be all thin white women that are taking up a shit ton of space. Mm -hmm. And I guess like what, so the bird's papaya used to live in a fat body. She lost weight. She realized that she had like submitted to diet culture and it like gave her disordered eating. And so she's been resisting against that. So she doesn't actually call herself a body positivity person. She's very much about like um, resisting against diet culture and embracing yourself and all of these things. So she's like a NYX model. She show NYX is like underwear. And so she shows a lot of um, her stretch marks and cellulite and things like that and gets, I guess, women or bodies to kind of embrace that. And so... Anyway, she was called out along with a myriad of other white, thinner, thinner women and told, like, you guys need to be able to understand that this isn't really a, like, you guys shouldn't have this space to yourselves. 
Like this is for other women and it's actually for fat women. It's actually for fat bodies. It's actually for women of color. It's actually for people that go into places and they aren't accessible to them. Like these are actually what these are spaces are for. If you can just wear like high rise yoga pants and you know, take like whatever imperfection you're calling that away so that you can just fit into society as like a thin body. That's not really what body positivity is about. And so anyway, she, so I was actually very happy about this. Very happy. She accepted, um, this call in with a lot of, with a lot of grace and humility and is now actually, she's a podcast. Um, and so she's actually now talking to the woman that called her out and they're now in conversation and they're going on podcasts together and all of her stories in the past, like couple days have been promoting other channels that are black women, um, fat women, uh, like all of these other things saying like, this is kind of what I do in this space, but these women are actually what, you know, you should be following these women. She actually asked her audience, how many scrolls does it take for you to find like a body that doesn't look like yours maybe, or a body that is fat or a body, like a woman of color or something like that. And she said it took her 50 scrolls. And so she's like, I have to do better, which wow. means a lot of you have to do better. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's like wow. my gratitude. I like, I like it when people are called out and then, or in, and then they like, go into the discussion and then they start doing their own work so that it's not on fat bodies or people of color. Like, I think that's really important. Yeah. I love, love, love that. Love that. Was that your success? No, that was my gratitude. You already did your gratitude though. Do you want okay. to do <laughs> Today is off for me. And I think it's because I have been working nonstop, um, like 15 hours a day trying to, take the baton from my lovely co-host Shalina on a report that's due to the funder, which we just found out is actually, we have another week. Yeah. And I breathe the sigh of relief. (laughs) I'm hoping you all heard it. Uh, I want to talk about my success, right? Yep. Um, And part of it is a little bit that's really not mine. I guess it's mother nature and the goddesses, which is about the sunshine. Yeah. Because I wake up at 6.30 in the morning, or Basil wakes me up at 6.30 in the morning because he wants to go for his walk. And I am leaping out of bed to go out because it's sunny. The the back of my, my, my place are beautiful woods. And so going out in the morning when there's nobody around, just the birds, Basil and myself, is just phenomenal. Mm. So that, that's a success. Um, but more so because coming up, and people laugh when I say this, but I actually believe this. Coming up is my youngest, Christiana's birthday. She's turning 23 next week. And when I look at my children, I view them as my biggest success. And I was looking at uh, pictures of Christy when she was little and she's constantly taking pictures of herself because she's of that generation but I was looking at pictures of her when she was little and thinking about how much of an incredible human being this young lady is and when I think about 
of all my children, who is most like me? Obviously, it, it, it's her. It's her. I call her the closest mini there is to a mini But I, I think she is my success because I, I hear her the way she talks to her friends. I listen to the way she talks about global, political, you know, ecological issues. I hear her the way she connects with her siblings. And I think I did that. Mm-hmm. I raised her to be that woman. And so my success is to my 23, soon to be 23 year old, absolutely, absolutely spectacular third wish daughter, Christiana, who I couldn't love any more than if she was me. <laughs> she's just dynamite she's but her successes are all because of me that's the way i look at it so cheers to christine cheers ah um happy early birthday christy okay um my success was also the good weather i it has been absolutely lovely it's like hot like it's actually hot in my house I was on the toilet and I was sweating and I was like, what is this feeling again? (laughs) Um, So yeah. And then I looked at like the temperature it was in my house and it was like 21 and a half. Anyway, very good. It's beautiful outside. Um, And it's just like, I moved all my indoor plants outside to like the backyard on a, we have like a bar out there. And so I moved it all on there. I had like excellent sex today. So I think it's just like, I don't know. (laughs) The sunshine and, like, the beautiful, like, air. Yeah. Anyway, that's also my success. Love it. We're here for all of that, Shalina. All of that. So we are about to get into what I know all of you are going to really, really enjoy, a conversation with the incredibly talented, multilingual Anuradha Dugal. Stay tuned. so so excited so honored to be in conversation with a wonderful wonderful longtime friend of mine and again one of the women that I call girl crushes Anuradha Dugal who is going to be joining us today for a really really wonderful conversation that takes us a little bit back down memory lane because Anu and I are going to talk about England as well as some very 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 important issues that we sort of touched on in the past around Shalina do you want to yeah uh talking about like racism also identities and mixed in with like um biracial but also raising kids which our last conversation was um i think we're going to talk a lot about like white supremacy privilege um yeah a lot of those conversations that we have had in the past but i think we're going to get a little deeper into it and have somebody with uh, a lot of lived experience around those issues. There we go. So welcome, Anu. Hello. It's so nice to be here, Neka and Shalina. Thank you so much for, for asking me to talk to you. There we go. Um, I've tried to get you on the podcast for a long time, <laughs> a long time. And I, I was beginning to feel a little bit of anxiety because for a long time, Anu, she never responded. 
and then, and then I thought, is it something I said? That's that's a bit yeah, that's a bit like how I am, as you know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to all those people out there who know me. Sorry, <laughs> I could be good. a bad correspondent. It's all good because she did come back one Sunday. I think I got a text <laughs> in the morning saying, um, "I would actually like to appear on your podcast if you still have." And I thought, "Oh my God, of course we'll still have you." So here you are. Here you are. Why don't you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, well, my name is Anuradha Dugal. I live in Montreal, um, which is the only place I've ever lived in Canada, but also the place I've lived the longest in my entire life. Um, I'm an immigrant to Canada. Um, I work for the Canadian Women's Foundation in policy areas. I am um, the mum of three wonderful uh, bigger and bigger boys. Um, mm -hmm. And I, um, I don't know really what else to say. I knit, I sew, I quilt. And um, I really, really like talking about things um, with honesty and deeply and actually Neka, you're one of the people who I think I can have conversations like that with and that's why it's so amazing that we're, we're doing this not just like we have done in the past yeah. just you know quietly in corners and in rooms and yeah. meetings and drinks and meals but now um, in public it, it's kind of interesting. I completely agree I, I, I want to share a little bit um, a couple of years ago uh, Anu and I were part of the Federal Council uh, with Minister, Mon Minister Monsef's Federal Council on what the GDB strategy. Thank uh, you very much. Yes. Yes, Gender-Based Violence uh, Advisory Council. Um, and I think there was a meeting in, in your hometown in Montreal. And so I fly in and mm -hmm. I don't know anybody there. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to spend the next two days and I get a text from Manorada saying, let's go for drinks. And I think, well, of course we're going to go for drinks. And we, we met up in this most amazing, cool restaurant that had, we should do a shout out, not that they're sponsoring us, but it was I awesome. Think it, I'm just going to check the name. Was it the St. Therese? On, it was on St. Catherine I Street. Remember. I'm going to look it up. Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it was fantastic. It was sort of in the backyard, looked like a backyard, walled in with ivy growing on the It was fantastic. And it was honestly one of the, as Annie said, one of the most honest and, and authentic conversations that I've had with anybody in this violence against women sector, because we were able to talk freely and openly without judgment and found that we had a lot of things in common. One of which being that we both were raised in the United Kingdom. So how was that for a start? Where were you raised? Yeah. Um, well, I was raised in the United Kingdom, but, but also having to constantly go backwards and forwards to um, uh, Nigeria, where my dad was working, um, and which is where I was all, also born, but also... Oh, no, sorry, sorry. Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you. I'm so sorry. But this is another way, place where we, yes. we connect because I'm Nigerian as well. That's right. That's the other. Yes. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. That's Carry sorry. on, darling. And, then, um, and India and then Spain and various other places. But what always, I mean, I mean England is where my mom was from and it was where I was largely educated. So it's a place, and it's where all my family still continue to live, my immediately, my siblings and my mom. So 
it, it, you know, it's, um, it's a place that for me has a lot of uh, obviously great memories, uh, family-wise and of course friends, but also a lot of very troubled memories because of the time that we lived there was, you know, 70s, 80s, especially um, the rise of the National Front, a lot of, you know, Thatcherism, a lot of things that made uh, England, uh, for some people, wonderful, but for an awful lot of people, a really terrible, hard place to live. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely hear you. But I, again, I, I wonder whether, I'm sure it's not, alone, we're not alone, right, in, in the sense mm. that uh, the UK was not the only place where racism was rife. And our, mm -hmm. Shalina is too young to know what it was like in the 70s <laughs> in Canada. Amanda is even younger. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this, these sentiments were the same there as they were here. Mm -hmm. Similar to the way that the rise of white supremacy here in Canada, well, in North America, is again mirrored in, in other parts of the world, in, in the UK. So I think it's a, it's a question of what goes around Bloody well comes back around, isn't it? Well, and, and also, does it ever really go away? I mean, I know we, there was a time, I don't think that racism disappeared in like, you know, the 90s or the, or the early 2000s, but I think in, in the kind of, um, there was a time when it wasn't possible to say the word racism, which I was also found really, like I know myself, I say that word way more than I ever used to when I was in my 20s or 30s. Now, is that my... Mm -hmm my own awareness or is that the fact that suddenly you can say it without people jumping down your throat and telling you you're overreacting? I'm, I'm not sure. It's a good question. What do you think, Shanina? Well, I don't have a time to like compare it to <laughs> like you guys do. Um, but I think that, and I think when I was younger, I also didn't, as a white woman, uh, living in like a very small town um, didn't have we didn't even talk about racism I, like in classes and things like that that wasn't something that we really focused on I think in my high school we maybe had two black students um, and that was about the diversity like in quotes that we had so it wasn't until I actually went to university in um, well, actually in Guelph, we kind of talked about it. And then in Toronto at Ryerson, that's when we really started having like conversations around not only racism, but like certain aspects of racism and what that looks like. So, I mean, now I'm very comfortable talking about it and talk about it all the time. But I mean, I was also like, uh, I went through a bachelor's of social work. I went through a master's of social work. And so I was able to unlearn and unpack a lot of those things. So I, like, I don't really have much to compare that to. Um, I think now in the circles that I surround myself with, we talk about it very often. Um, and around like my family and friends, because I still live in a small town, I'm usually the first one to bring it up. Um, so, I mean, I'm very comfortable talking about it, but that's kind of just my experience. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, you mentioned being a, uh, being in a high school with only um, one or two uh, black kids. I was in a high school where I was the only racialized person virtually myself, my sister, and maybe there were like two or three other girls. So also a very, it was a rural area of England. I didn't grow up in a, in a very urban place at all. So 
that may have been also part of where that sensitivity comes from that you don't talk about it and if you do it's always people always say think you're you're pointing the finger um and i mean to be fair too there was an awful lot there, there are a lot of messages to assimilate there are a lot of messages to keep your head down you know don't wear your funny clothes don't don't eat your funny food um please uh, please be like us so that you're you, you don't threaten us and you don't make us feel bad and um uh and besides which obviously <laughs> living in england and um having the connection to india and nigeria there's constant references to the to the empire and the glorious past of england and all the wonderful <laughs> things that england brought the rest of the world which you just you you know you just kind of keep on listening to and at a certain point you just can't really it's not a lot you can do about it sometimes is that it's just the way they think well it's interesting because I, my dad um we were there 60s 70s 80s my dad was a very afrocentric nigerian man who actually and i've said this to the team my, my, i think He's passed away now, so I, I, I know I'm not defaming, defaming him, but I think he was very racist against white people and had a sort of a black supremacist uh, lens of the world. So would, would tell my siblings and I that everybody, and I've talked about this before, everybody descended from black women, mitochondrial Eve, right? And so... For me, it was like the, the shield, the armor that I, I, the cloak that I put on every time I go to school because I was told that by my dad that everybody else was sort of a facsimile of me. And so when I'd, I'd hear them talk about, you know, very racist things, the nuns, I went to a convent in, in Wimbledon when they'd make comments, and again, all well-intentioned. I don't think they were trying to, to hurt me specifically, but when they'd make these comments, I would just let it slide because in my head and in my heart, I knew that everybody descended from, from my ancestors. And it was also interesting because my dad took me to the museum. I think I was about 14 and we went to see the Benin bronze. There was a, a, an exhibition at the London yeah. museum. And they, it was interesting because they, they had set up these exhibits that were comparing timelines. So pottery and, brass and you know that type of um craftsmanship from different different countries and the the skill skills and the skillmanship or skill personship of nigerian artisans was it was like people living in comparing people living in the stone age to people living in 2020 it was night and day so looking at the crafts, arts and crafts and pottery that was being reproduced in Europe compared to bronze work that was done by Joss and Ifik, I thought, yeah, of course I, I know where, where I'm from. So I never walked around with that sense of less than. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really applaud and acknowledge my dad for that. It's like the name, right? We never, I never changed my name. It's yeah. always been a Neka. You... I've always been Anurada. That's right. Anurada is is it's not complicated, is it? People No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 phonetic. It's not that hard a name to pronounce. No. Unlike Necker. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I know people sometimes get confused by by uh, you know the different syllables, right? When they're not used, like for you, it's your your two ends. For me, it's the dh. It's kind of like what? Why? Why are those letters together? They don't belong together there. Um, so they think they can't say it. But um, no, I, I I find it interesting what you say because I I I even remember. So I I think I struggled with that idea of pride in who I was, and that partially came maybe even from being surrounded by a largely white family. So the people who we knew and the people we um, spent time with were my mom's family. My mom's um, English from England, as I say, um, uh, from Warwickshire. Again, very rural people um, and, and working class rural, right? My mom was, is, is, was, claims working class. My grandfather on her side um, is a minor. Um, and was it sorry was a minor so it it's um I think there's a lot around that um not necessarily shame but certainly not pride it's kind mm. of like you know you're you're um don't first of all don't be too obvious and also don't be too other so I was a kind of loud, rambunctious, scrappy kid, right? I was the one who beat my sisters up. I would, and I was also considered to be spoiled. Um, and so there was a lot of pushing me down, right? And that, and that pushing me down, not only translated as you're, you know, you're too big for your boots in terms of just being, you know, a big personality, but you're too big for your boots and you're, you're, you know, we need to keep you quiet because you'll take up too much space. You're too obvious mm. because you're brown. Um, and so I think that's one way I took it. So that when it came to my teens, and I, I guess it could have been a point where I could have really um, explored more of that and had my dad was around more. My dad, um, I think, was interested in having us um, be connected more to his family and his um, culture. It, it was almost too late by then. It was, mm. it was if whatever, you know, whatever could have happened when I was younger to build that in from a very early age was not there when I, when I kind of hit that really critical age of 13. And you know, we know for girls, you know, 13 and self-esteem and mm. body image and all of those things there, that's a really tough time. Um, and so I, I used to, you know, think to myself, I'd say things to myself like, oh, it's all right, Annie, if people don't know what your name is, they'll just think you're Spanish and that's okay. Wow. Yeah, that's the kind of Eurocentric worldview that I had encased myself in. And it took, it took a long time to, to, un, to get out of that. And actually, you know, it took going to, to Asia myself as an adult. I'd say for me, that started to be completely... Um, no longer an issue when I went to Japan and I lived in Japan for a few years and in Japan like whether I was from England or whether I was from India they really didn't care at all they were just you know they just loved hearing whatever I had to say um, yeah was it because they, they loved it because of your English accent probably my English accent uh, like, I found, <laughs> sorry. no I found I found that it gets you out of trouble in all sorts of circumstances. <laughs> So I don't know whether that's thing for you. <laughs> I love people who, who think I'm more intelligent because I have an English accent. <laughs> right. so I'll take that. <laughs> Again, that's, you know, this is the colonizer colonized, right? I, I, I am colonized. And so I have this lovely accent that people, people uh, 
people associate with the colonizer. And I'm kind of like, well, I guess I'll take it because um, it, it's working in my favor. But but accent is another privilege, right? We were talking, mm. I mentioned privilege at the beginning. Having this lovely English accent is definitely a privilege. Having lighter skin than um, you know than my cousins, that's definitely a privilege. You know, let's 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 pursue that a little bit because I've always and there are so many things that you just said there about colorism, mm -hmm. um, and and again, it it it's it's not just about the is it okay? Here's political political correctness is it mixed race or biracial i i really i have no preference there are, you can say all sorts of things i i have tended to stay away from well i you know i to me i'm not mixed race and i'm not i mean biracial is okay i'm fine with racialized actually because okay. to me it, it's not like it's not the fact that i'm both that matters to other people it's the fact that there is a there there's a racialization there that matters wow. right that's what's that's what's planted on my face by by societal um stereotypes right so for me and honestly for my mom and my dad they would have both said it doesn't make any difference to us what color we are to each other or what color you are as kids they say they tell told us many times we never even considered the effect it might have on you that we weren't the same race we considered it in our family between ourselves like they were prepared for their own families to disown them mm -hmm. um but they had said they never considered that it would have a difference on their kids mm -hmm. wow so i find that also interestingly like maybe it's a blind spot that they had more than anything yeah yeah i don't know what question neka was on going to ask so i don't want to interrupt that no go because that that just sent me off on seven other directions but <laughs> <laughs> no, mine's just kind of like an observation um in when i was doing my uh bachelor of social work i did some research and it was on transracial uh placements in adoption and foster homes mm -hmm. and so i i can't particularly like completely remember what like my focus was like what I guess I ended up with, but pretty much it was just exploring. I interviewed a lot of um, kids in foster care. And then I also interviewed a lot of parents that were foster parents. And um, it was, it was very interesting because I had some parents say to me, well, like there was one that was a nurse and she was like, well, I'm a nurse. I don't see color. So I just moved through the world like this. And she was a black woman. Her foster child was a white teenager, young girl, who was targeting her based on her race by using a lot of racial slurs and being like very racist. And so I, I kind of like deconstructed with this woman who is much older than me and I'm sure had like much more experience in life. But I kind of talked to her about how like, of course we see color of course like if if mm -hmm. you don't in your family like that's okay but as soon as that person leaves your front door and they go into the world they're perceived in a different way the way that their body is taken up by different people and different systems and people in power and and 
like you were talking about your accent, your name, like all of these things that people maybe in white skin don't have to think about. I think that anyway, I think that's a really interesting point. And I kind of broke it down with this woman and then she was kind of like coming to like, uh, Oh, like an aha moment in this interview with me. And then that's when she told me about all of the like racial slurs that she was being called by her foster daughter. Mm-hmm. And I just found it very interesting that like a lot of people still walk through thinking that they're greater than by saying like, I'm colorblind. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, really you're just not understanding the impact that um, like white supremacy has on like racialized black indigenous people. And, and you don't want to take it up. So it's a very easy like scapegoat to say, I'm colorblind. I don't see it, you know? Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Neka. No, no, no. I, I think that was that was actually really profound because complete digression, but on point, when you started talking about your, your BSW work, and we've, we've talked about this before, around um, the, the way society views adoption and fostering by Black couples of white children versus white couples by black of white couples adopting black children versus black people adopting white children and how um you know the it's it's not about loving the child it's about providing you know whatever yeah And and it's actually really complex in itself because I, I would have concerns, and I think valid concerns, over white people adopting a black child, a black girl, for example, and you don't know what to do with her hair, right? Mm-hmm. Or you adopt a black child and you have no clue about, you know, the, the, the sort of the historical, the cultural, the, the significance of being black. Mm-hmm. And so... It's not just about love. I guess I, I just contradicted myself. It is, it is about love and it isn't about love. Sometimes you need yeah. to dig deep. Yeah. You know, and it's because when you see, like, I just think there's always like those memes or those stories that come out about like, oh, like this white mom, like she was just, like, she was asking all these questions about how to do her like black daughter's hair. And it's like, yes, like that's what like being a parent is. Like we shouldn't be like praising her for this doing this work like that's her job <laughs> like that's literally her job yeah. when she agreed to take care of this child uh, yeah. well and I think that's like that's like the littlest scope of it right yeah. so like, that's the white mom's worry and yet the black mom's worry is not to be called like the police not to be called on her saying that she's serving kids or not to continuously be called the nanny or things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And there was one situation where black parents were trying to adopt, and they adopted um, they adopted a black little girl, and that was fine. It literally like took two months for like everything to go through, and then they had tra- tried to adopt a white girl, and it took like three years for it to get done because you know the adoption agencies were so against it. But anyway, yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up. That's very interesting. I, I think it's, um, I, I, I mean, I had a white mom and, and I know I spent time with her. I mean, not that it's any way in comparison to her having, um, having uh, black kids at all. Um, like, you know, there wasn't necessarily things she had to learn, but there were certainly surprises that, that she was faced with having a kid who was, you know, if you like the most Indian out of her, all of her children. So 
you know, I was hairier than she expected me to be, you know, my period started earlier than she expected them to that, you know, there were, there were those, I, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, I guess she, she, you know, this is a bit strange for her. Um, and then when I did start to talk to her and it, and it took years, like it was again, more or less as I was an adult that I started to talk about racism with her and the racism I'd experienced. And, and she, she honestly, I was just so surprised and mm -hmm. just, her reaction was, I would never have expected you to have ever had that experience. And, and, and very much, I think, from the position of, you're my child, right? No. There was a, her privilege in, you know, um, and, and to be fair, I don't think she really ever acknowledged any racism my dad experienced, right? And mm -hmm. my dad never really ever wanted to live in England. And I believe... Again, he never outrightly said it, but he he knew how you know his people were treated in England, and he had no interest in being considered in that um, group. So yeah. he he isolated himself from them, even in England. So we had very few Indian contacts in England because of that. Wow. So well, my 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 dad was. Um, he used to talk about when he first he came to England in 1962 and he talked about how it took him I don't know a week before anybody would rent a room to him and he would walk up to to doors that would have and now it seems like a, a, a trope, right? It seems inconceivable, but he, he said that on the doors, there'd be a sign, no, no, no dogs, no blacks, no Irishmen in that order. Oh, so, yes, no. it does. It sounds like you, like you can't believe those signs are there. In, in, in our lifetime almost, right? So, so he experienced that in the 60s. And I remember being in a convent similar to you. It was predominantly, overwhelmingly white. And I think there were, you could count, there were maybe four, three or four black girls and maybe two brown girls, but the rest were, were white. And all the teachers were white. Um, all the nuns were, everybody was white. And trying to, to figure out, you know, the whole thing around hair, and hair straightening and you know the, the the your lips are too thick and your nose is too and all of that stuff i would I, I don't remember experiencing it directly i didn't i don't remember my friends other girls being racist towards me but i remember never being picked yeah. <laughs> yes. or never <laughs> unless it was something to do with fucking sports right so <laughs> and i hated sports <laughs> i hate I hated sports. I, I, my sister, one of the twins was an athlete, right? She played tennis for under, under the sort of youth London represented England and did track and field netball and all that. And I hated, I hated breaking sweat, but at the convent, the, anything that would happen in cross country, they'd think, oh, NECA, and I think, no, NECA can't. NECA does not have any desires. <laughs> but yeah. It was really bizarre. And, and one, one last thing to share on this whole sort of the racism at school was I, I was doing when after our O-levels, I, I think I did eight or eight, nine, eight or nine, um, 
we were picking, you know, you, you, you then get to pick your three A-levels. Mm-hmm. As you're picking it, you're, you're determining what career you're going to go in for. So I had decided that I, I wanted to do English art, English history and classical studies, classical civilization. Mm-hmm. And because I was good at art, I wanted to do art as a fourth. So they said, okay, you can do art as a fourth. So I was doing four A-levels. And still the nun, Sister Anne, um, told my father or told me that I, I should not apply to university to read law because she didn't think I would, I, I was smart enough. This is a girl that's doing four A-levels. Number one, that I'm smart enough. And the secondly, that she thinks that I should apply to become a legal secretary instead. Oh my so, God. But she forgot who my father was because <laughs> we'll talk about that after another glass of wine. Because he went to the school to tell her about herself. Anyway, oh. so yeah, the, the, the racism that was overt at, at that mm-hmm. age was enough to break people, right? It, mm-hmm. it really broke your spirit. It could break you again, had it not been for a, um, a stable, actually really ardent activist that I had in my dad, I think I would have been a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you've mentioned activism because again, I would say that I only have really um, unpacked, because I mean, I, I chose to do languages at university and I, you know, I was going to work in the EU or I was going to, you know, again, going back to that European, I'm, I'm going to become European. Um, and then I, I actually ended up doing teaching and teaching um, a lot of racialized girls and a lot of racialized schools. And I think it was when I was teaching and going into schools and I, I ended up in London. I, I, I don't even know now why I chose London except that it was the center of the universe <laughs> and why you had to live there, right? <laughs> so I, I chose to go to the Institute of Education, take some teaching qualification and then taught in Islington and Highbury and Walthamstow wow. and, um, and then uh, New Malden. And, and this is where suddenly I was like confronted with okay, these are really my people. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I'm going to find out what it's all about and what I've been put here to do and, you know, kind of what, what has meaning because for, it it really wasn't until that awakening that I I got out of, you know, because also that time in Britain, we were really being sold uh, financial, you know, futures in the financial markets and, the great power of the British pound and we were all going to be stockbrokers and you know there was all kinds of anybody who comes out of university will get a job right away in the city and I you know I knew I didn't want that um and I couldn't think of how ridiculous it was to spend your life making money for somebody else like I I was really that was something that I knew right away I can't do that um so teaching was perfect and then and then through that, I really learned about young people and then young people who are in my face about all sorts of things, right? Because they, they were switched on. I don't know how, you know, I never got switched on, but the young people who I, I met and I worked with and the other teachers, right? They're in, teachers in London, they are, you know, they're, they're activists, they're social justice warriors. If you stay in inner city London and you want to teach, there's a damn good reason why you're doing that. And that's oh, what I, I learned from them. Yeah, and I, I know why. I know why, because on the daily, um, they're confronted with racism 
and its ramifications on their students. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so this intersection of race and class and, you know, access to justice and housing. And it, it was just a lot that in order for you to function, especially in the education sector, you could not, you can't really bury your head in, in the sand. And pretend no, no, you can't. No, can't. nothing was about academics. <laughs> it was all was about nothing. society. Yeah. I'm curious about your move from mm. the UK. And, yeah. and also, here's a personal question. How do yes. you meet your delicious, delicious husband? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so I went to Japan. So I decided after a, a few years, uh, two or three years in London, I needed to do something else. So I, I wanted to experience Asia. So I got a job in Japan teaching also um, and met him there. He was, he was teaching too. Um, and Japan, you know, it was, I have to say, it was the absolute, Pits for me in some ways. It was the bottom of, of the barrel in some, like, you know, I had some awful experiences there. And then what came out of it was this amazing relationship and the, the fantastic um, experience of being able to come and, and live in Canada for, and Quebec specifically, Montreal in particular. Um, so we met there and, and he was, he was um, so he's white, right? And for a long time, I had always assumed I would I would always marry a white guy or, or be, I'd always been in relationships with white guys, partially because um, brown guys seem to expect a whole different thing, set of things from me. Like guys who were, who were potentially, you know, white people, Indian, Pakistani, they, there were a lot of assumptions about who I was going to be and how I was going to mm. behave. Such as? Oh, well, there was a lot about you're going to, you know, you'll be, if you marry me, you'll, you won't ever have to worry about money and um, you'll be a perfect hostess and I'll take care of you and, you know, you'll look pretty. But, so there, there was, there was a lot of that kind of very, not traditional roles, like traditional historical Indian women roles, but traditional roles more around kind of, um, wife as decorative or, or right. you know, somebody who will bring up the children well because she's well-educated, somebody who will right. go and sit on committees in the way she's supposed to. Like, those were the young men I was meeting. Let's just okay. say that. Um, and, and I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, and then when, at that time, and I've talked to my sisters about this since, like, I don't think there were a lot of, like, cool, young... I didn't meet them anyway. Like, <laughs> like Jagmeet Singh, like, I, I, didn't, I didn't see men like that around when I was Neither did I. this generation. So, you know, that's a good thing. Shout out to Jagmeet Singh. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> but no, but getting back to my delicious husband, he, um, he was really also, okay, so he's white, but he was also somebody who was like, why don't you, why don't you talk about being Indian? Why? Why don't you wear saris? Why don't you, why don't you know anything about India? Why don't you know? And not in an accusing, like, bad way, but don't you think you'd like to know more and be involved oh. more? Um, and so, you know, this, this was where suddenly it was okay to be the whole of who I am, hmm. rather than always having to sit to, you know, for an Indian guy, just be Indian, or for a white guy, just be white. Here was somebody with whom it seemed I could be 
like literally whatever I want it to be. Um, And no, no questions, like no, you know, just do whatever it is. Explore. I loved him. I I just want to say, sorry, Shalina. I, I met him a couple of times. Not only is he, and this is not objectifying him and Rada, but he is eye candy. <laughs> but um, but he, he he genuinely has this beautiful, gentle mm-hmm. aura and very, yeah. very intelligent. Really, yeah. really intelligent. And so every time we, we talk about men on this podca- podcast, it's always interesting because the men we generally talk about are always the good ones. Shalina's husband, Amanda's fiance, my son. It's always the good ones, which I think is a really, really, really good thing. And we're saying mm-hmm. to all survivors out there, all women out there, they do exist. They're not like unicorns. They actually do exist because Anu has one, Shalina has one, Amanda has one. I have several, but that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> Shalina, you were going to say something? Um, no, I was just going to say that shouldn't like that's amazing that the man that you met allowed you and gave you the space to kind of like be whoever you wanted to be and I and I think that's amazing and here we are like oh and it's like that's really kind of actually should be mediocre right like right. like every right. man doing yes. That. yes and and not just men partners not just men partners. exactly yep yeah and and yet from our response like, it's obvious that that isn't the case. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think, like, the fact that you were able to be in a relationship where that person gave you the freedom to kind of explore who you were, I think that's what, like, all partners should actually try to strive for. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, I do think that's something we've made a value in our relationship. And we, we've always, we've said to each other, we, we have the right to change, too, right, as yeah. we go through our relationship. and. Yeah. Um, and that we're not going to become this sort of mushed up thing. We are two whole people, you know, um, moving together through life. Um, and, 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 that, and that that's what we've chosen to do. So I, I, I do, I agree with you. I think, I mean, that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time trying to think about in the healthy relationships programs, just for very briefly touching on my work. I do think it's really important that, that people learn that that's what a relationship is actually about. It's not. Um, I mean, we, of course, we, not to say that our relationship is perfect because we yell and we shout and we, you know, we, we have our bad days and uh, we, you know, we can't always see eye to eye, but it's the being able to work through it and not, um, not actually damage each other as you work through it. Right. Because so many times it's very, very easy to, call somebody's identity into question when you are um working through something that's about two people trying to live together beautiful yeah well after Um, that we came to some really great relationship advice i know (laughs) i love that i love that last week we had on the show one of our um chapter chairs this awesome awesome woman called jamie torek and jamie was talking about the challenges of raising um, boys, sons, 
and especially for her and I was because we're, we're survivors who have experienced violence and are then trying to teach our boys how to live in a world that's full of respect. Now, I know you have sons. How is it? <laughs> how is it, number one, raising, raising boys, number one, and then two, raising boys who have a mother who has sort of the, the blended relationships, right? That yeah. blended um, identities. So I think it's a, that's a really interesting question. It's a tough one. It's one, like I, I, again, this is where I do actually have to sort of echo something my mother said to me. I, it hadn't really clicked in my mind, or at least it hadn't clicked until when they were growing, that, that actually because of where my kids were and who their dad was and the families around them, they were essentially going to be white kids. And that, that had never really, I'd never really taken that in until, you know, and I think, well, maybe I had, because one of the things we did decide to do was we decided to call them Indian names. So all of my, my boys have Indian names and, and they freak out um, everybody in their school because, you know, especially my first kid who's like tall and kind of, you know, mousy haired and blue eyed and and he's kumar and people are like yeah why why are you called kumar and, and to the extent that you know their parents will they, their parents are preparing for kumar to come and visit and kumar work, walks in the door and and the parents will sort of look at him and say oh that's nice i'm glad you brought your friend where's kumar so, <laughs> so i do like that they mess with people's minds that way I love that. um and I like that it acknowledges their own grandfather. So we spend a lot of time, my dad's also passed away. So, so he has to, like my dad has to be a personality in our home because he's my connection to being Indian and their connection to being Indian. And then my cousins, of course, they know about them. But, but what I find hard about it is that I want them to, um, yes, acknowledge their power and privilege. And I think they do that very well. And it helps to have the dad they have. That, that that is something that they've um, they've uh, understood and they've understood their place. So just as a, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but I'm going to use it. My oldest son um, was a volunteer for a pride parade in Montreal a couple of years back. And one of the things that they um, also did was they said, uh, you know, we're creating a special space for um, racialized and um, folks who want to have a safe space within Pride. And I, I did, I sort of asked my son, I was, I had no idea what he was going to say. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. Did you, did you at any time feel that there was any reason that you would need that space? He was like, no, mom, no, that's not for me. And I, I think that's really interesting that he knows, um, he knows he's got me as his mom, but that doesn't affect necessarily who he is mm. per se like that doesn't he he understands that the, the the privilege he owns as a white man and that he he's in that world and he shouldn't be taking up space he can be mm. an ally he can be a you know a supporter but he's not taking that space from anybody else so I, for me that was interesting and then you know we have lots of other conversations Montreal's a very very diverse place so we do you know we try to um, we have lots of friends and they, you know, have lots of friends from lots of different places, but there's no denying that they, they have, you know, immense power and it worries me sometimes who they will become. I don't think that worry can, 
I don't think being in the work I'm in and knowing the people I know, I don't think that fear can ever go away. No. Um, so I do, you know, I do always question myself. It's interesting how as women we say that's on us, right? Yeah. To, to have taught them the right thing. It's like, hmm. no, I think actually other people have a responsibility there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, I do, I take it on. I understand, I understand that. I understand. Well, mine is slightly different because I, I, I'm a single parent. I raised my, my children. Even when I was married, I raised them as a single parent. But it's interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking about my children in the schools that they went to, which were all white. Alexander, my son Alexander was the only black boy, I think, in the school from grade one to I think grade eight. Grade eight. That's was shocking. One, well, and, and, and you will be even more surprised when you learn that the school is the most diverse school in, I think, Ontario. I, I, actually, I think Canada. It's the most diverse private school in, in the country, right? Maybe now maybe. or then? Then. It, it, that's, that's been one of their things. That's been one oh. of their things. Christiana went to Branson and, again, was the only black girl from grade one to grade seven when she started grade seven. Mm -hmm. So... For, for me, raising black children who are visibly black, mm -hmm. and we're not going to get into colorism today, but they are visibly, visibly black, raising them um, consciously in a school where the, the, the environment is all their friends are white, you know, going to an all-girls school, all the boys that all the girls fancied went to the all-white. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so... so trying to be this consciousness raising black power in, in, in mm -hmm. that keeps them grounded and um, prideful in, in their skin, but also expecting that, you know, the world is, it is what it is. The world is, is diverse. But again, how do you, how do you, Annie, have that conversation with your boys about race specifically has anything mm -hmm. happened that um sort of anti-muslim because i i know all the stuff that's happened we know all the stuff that's happening yeah. in in quebec around hijab muslim that's right anti-muslim anti yeah. sentiments what yeah. types of conversations are you having with them about that so i i i mean this is where sometimes i have to um Sometimes I step in and sometimes I step out. So, so I know, for example, with, with all of, all of the, all three of them, they all have Muslim friends at school who observe Ramadan, who will celebrate Eid at the weekend, who are, um, uh, you know, fairly, uh, observant, uh, girls who wear headscarves, um, in school. And, and I'd say all of our conversations about that is, um, <laughs> the, the Quebec law is wrong, right? That, that there is, um, there is like, like there's no, we're not equivocal about that. We are, we, there's it's no a wrong. <laughs> no. Um, but we do have other interesting conversations like um, they will say things about what they, you know, um, kids who 
say certain things in class or um, you know there are kids in their school who make sexist comments there are kids in their school who are racist against Chinese kids in the school there are kids that so right around the time that COVID was more January right before all the lockdowns were happening they were having conversations in their school about all, all their Asian friends who were being you know um, accosted on buses and uh, you know told that they were um, you know they were they were disease carriers and and that right away they were like that's that's not on we you know we're we're standing by our friends when we're on buses because we know we have to help help them like take care of not take care of them but be with them at those times they yeah. can't you know we can't let this happen this isn't who we are this isn't what we believe in but at the same time there are definitely conversations that um assumptions about people and races and sexes um that that we have to challenge and then i remember having a wonderful conversation at the dinner table one evening um with my kids saying we were sort of saying oh well when so-and-so gets a girlfriend um, and we were talking about him when he gets a girlfriend then i guess we'll have to just deal with whatever she's like and then i said well you know it may not be a girlfriend it may be a boyfriend and and everybody's like, oh yes, you're right, mom. It might be a girlfriend, a boyfriend. And then and then my son, my youngest son, who was at the time was like eight. He said, or it could be some someone transgender. And then you know we'd be saying wow. whoever they are. And I was like, uh, yes, 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 you're absolutely right. <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. So so it's I think there's um you know that's it's never a straight line. It's like how they learn math and, and English. Sometimes they're way ahead in one area and way behind in another area. And it's the same with their social understanding. Wow, wow. I, I want to just explore very briefly the whole power, because I, 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 we, we're talking about race and being mixed race and how sometimes it's a power thing right because I mean you pass as white you could, mm -hmm. you could pass as white mm -hmm. and, and so sometimes it's a powerful it's a power tripping thing that you pass as white and you're married to white uh, compared to when you were younger where it was a it was a disempowering thing where yeah. you were seen more as what what would you tell your I don't know 13 year old self mm -hmm. about power and racism and all of that stuff in the state of the world i i think first off i would tell her not to be so scared of who she was oh. yeah because i think there was a lot of um uh yeah i think there was a lot of need to hide um and and again because i was deemed in the family to be the one who looked most indian my i, I mean i i pass as white it's true in many ways my two older sisters I mean, they, they, they really, like one has freckles and, um, uh, you know, she, nobody would guess she was, um, uh, had an Indian dad and my other sister has very, very pale skin, same, same thing. So I'm, I was always deemed the most Indian looking one. Um, so I, I would, first of all, I'd say, don't be afraid of it. Um, and, there, and then I would kind of go even further and say, embrace it, like really embrace it. I mean, I wish I spoke Hindi. I wish I spoke Punjabi. I, I wish I, um, 
I wish I had spent more time understanding um, the festivals. Like, I'm very happy I'm in touch with my Indian cousins and they, they help and they, you know, they, they, they encourage us all to participate and we do things together, which is lovely. Um, and I now, well, this is a new thing during COVID. I've, I've started sari days. So, so once a week, I'll take a sari out of the cupboard and I'll put it on because uh, why not? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. Um, and normally I, I wear saris to parties, right? If there's a party, I would wear a sari. And I'm not going to any parties for a long time. So I might as well wear them at home. I love that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think those are the two things. And I think if, I think, the most, yeah, it's it's about owning who, owning who you are for who you are, and that that equally means don't be so scared of um, letting go of some things. That is beautiful. Yeah. That is beautiful. That made me all watery and teary. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We we knew that this conversation was going to be phenomenal and. Here's the proof. <laughs> and thank you so very much for spending time with us. Uh, we love you. We love, I love you. you too. How could you not, as, as my dad used to say? How could I not? You are. You are the archetypal woman, Necker. You are from whom we have all sprung. Well, there we go. Mitochondrial, mitochondrial Necker. Um, <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And I think we, we need to reserve another date yeah. to, because there's so much that you raised that we didn't get a chance to, to talk about. Right, Shalina? Yeah, I agree. I agree. One question that we're going to ask to end before we go to our outro is a question that we've asked a couple other guests. Um, and we'd like to hear your answer. So if you could have one superpower, what would it be? If I could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, I mean, in many ways, it would be to fly. Is that, is that, uh, that's just because I love the idea of just being able to jump off the ground and fly. But I think you're looking for, for a more, uh, a bit more of a profound. <laughs> no, we're looking like for bring, whatever you're feeling. Bring about world peace or <laughs> no, push no, this, understanding this, of no, everything. No. No, this, this, this is a superpower after several glasses of whatever it is, that delicious concoction that your son made. So it's absolutely fine. No wrong answers. No, no wrong answers. I don't have to wish for world peace and, uh, no. and want to heal everybody. No. That's another day. That's for another conversation. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Anu. That was honestly lovely, lovely, lovely. I felt like we were sitting in somebody's kitchen, probably Amanda's. Amanda's cake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a, a kitchen that we can sit in, but we can sit next to the kitchen. You know, like, we're in apartment living here, but we've got a table to sit at. <laughs> that is equally, equally fine. Equally fine. Yeah, we're going to check out. Um, so... The way that we check out is we do two things. We do our buzz rating. So your son made you a drink, so that sounds excellent. So all you're gonna do is give a buzz rating of one to five of just how much you like it. <laughs> it's not about you being on the floor or the 
you know, no. it's just about how much you like it. So that's what we do first. And then the second thing is I'm going to ask our checkout question and then we go around and we all answer. So the checkout question this week is, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Yeah. Ask it. Cause then we'll be able to think about it. Yeah, that was my plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we do the wine right now. I gotta get my calculator going too fast. It's just, it's just upending everything. Just Okay, so the outro question is going to be, who do you think you were in a past life? And if you could be reincarnated, who or what would you be? Whoa. Wow. She brings it every week. Yeah, every week. Does. So we're going to do our buzz rating first. So it gives everybody time to kind of like think on that. So yeah. I can go first. And because we're uh, obviously still living in COVID, uh, we are all doing this <laughs> over Zoom. So we're all drinking different things. So I am drinking Sandbanks, a Riesling Gutstraminer. It's an Ontario VQA. And it's, yeah, it's very good. Uh, I'm going to give it a 4.5 I, out of 5. I very, very, very much liked it. Hmm. I love um, wines from that area. Nice. Hmm. I can go. I am drinking um, an estate bottled Pasquale Tosso, uh, premium wine since 1890, 2018 Chardonnay. It's an Argentinian wine. And I love Chardonnays. Anybody who knows me knows this. But I'm not feeling this one today. Uh, I'm not feeling this one. So I'm going to give it a 2.75. Three. I'm going to give it a three. Because it's a Chardonnay. A three. Okay. <laughs> okay. Do I go next? Yep. So I... I, I have to admit something, okay, so so we are we are struggling under COVID to get any wine in the house, and we have drunk all the wine we previously had. <laughs> so so all that we have left is is booze, really. Um, so I had to improvise with a um, basically a, a smoothie that I added Bacardi to. So I had a mango, banana, pineapple smoothie oh, and wow. a splash of uh, Bacardi into that. And um, I would give it, you know what, I've had, and my son made it. I said I did it, but, you know, he did it. And I stood next to him telling him what to do because I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> um, I would give this one a three and a half. He has made way better ones that were like more like a, a, a four and a half. And I think it's because I put a few blueberries in. I love the honesty, honestly. Yeah, yeah. It was, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm judging that it's because there were more blueberries and less Bacardi. I think that might be a big <laughs> part of it, yes. Oh my, that's great. Amanda? I'm actually not. I feel so bad, but I had a headache this afternoon, and so I didn't want to risk it because I have to work some overtime tomorrow morning. So I was like, I can't uh, throw Get that off. off. So I'm drinking some water. Five out of five. Toronto tap water. <laughs> really great. <laughs> no judgment. Yeah. Here for all of it. But, but when we come back next time, if 
we do this again, I will make sure I have some love because I am a lover of lots of white wines and I would love to get in a very nice bottle of white wine and let's and do it. Sip it. Absolutely. It's, yeah. not an, it's not an if, it's a when. We will okay, it's a when. When we do it. So Shalina asks some jaw-dropping questions. Okay, so I'll repeat it just so it's in everybody's head. So it's a two-parter. So first is, who do you think you were in a past life? And if you could be reincarnated, who or what would you be? Wow. Uh, who wants to go first? I can go first. I asked it. I feel obligated. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, okay, who I was in a past life? I'm not sure, but when we were in Italy, um, we got to this town called Siena and we were walking around this town and there was something that was happening inside of me that I had seen the streets before. Like I knew where I was. I had seen it. I felt like nostalgia. It was this very weird feeling. I've never felt it anywhere before in my life. And I've never been to Italy. That was my first time. And I couldn't put a word on it. And I kept saying to Chris and Jesse, who was with us, I've been here before. Like something inside of me has been in this place. Oh. And like, what? <laughs> and so when we got back um, from our trip, we were there for a month, not in Siena. We were all over Italy for a month. Um, I was talking to Chris's mom, who is very spiritual. And she was telling me that that was somebody in my past life that had been there before. And that I was like, under, like I knew where to go. Like it was very weird. So anyway, that's the only kind of answer I can give for that. Who or what would I be reincarnated into is something in the ocean, 100%. I, I probably a shark, a shark is what I'm going with. Um, but hopefully I wouldn't be thinned and you know killed. Um, but I, there's something, I'm a diver. I love the water. There's something about being underwater and being in this other world where you can breathe and it's just like the coolest place. So something underwater, probably a shark. I can go next because that oh. was honestly my answer for what I think I was in a past life was something underwater. I, wow. I felt more connected. I feel like I was maybe like a... I like, I feel like either like a turtle or like a whale <laughs> Those uh -huh. are connected to, but I feel that way when you're talking about water, like I feel so at peace when I'm in the water, like nowhere else, like being in a pool is great, but being in an ocean, like, oh my God, like it just like, I could stay in the water all day. Like anytime I have the ability and like even um I had the opportunity to go to Europe last year with my partner's family and it was May and so the water was still very cold but I was like I have to go in the water like I don't care I'm not going to be somewhere with a different body of water and not go in it and so there was only like five other people that were like locals training swimming that were in the water and I was like I don't care I'm going in like I have to step foot in the Mediterranean Sea if I'm here and it yeah, it, so I'm just like, I feel so connected to the water. So I feel like it was something aquatic in a past life. So yeah, I feel very similarly. If to be reincarnated, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And I don't, 
it's funny because I don't think about that with myself, like myself being reincarnated, like being reincarnated into something in the future. But I've said to my mom, like many times, for some reason, me and my brother really like to talk about what's going to happen when my mom dies. We have that conversation, like, what? too often over <laughs> dinner. <laughs> I hope your mom's okay with that. Yeah, I think she, she's okay with it until a point. Then she's like, why do we always get on this topic? But I always tell her that my mom is very musical. And she has this piano that she's had my entire life. And I always tell her that I need the piano, like once she's passed, because like I think my mom will be in the piano. Like uh, I feel like, like, oh, like she will be in that piano. I know she will be. Like I need that. And so I'm like, maybe someone that's really important to me can decide down the line. I'll leave that up to someone else. I love that. If she needs me to be in, I'll be in that. Because <laughs> I don't know if my mom decided <laughs> that she's gonna be in the piano, but I did. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I absolutely love that. <laughs> So she's gonna she's gonna possess the piano. She's not necessarily yeah. gonna be. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Like she's her gonna... spirit will be in the piano. Like it I don't. Will, I, I felt that way since I was a kid. Like I'm like so she's she's so tied to that object for me. That oh. yeah, I'm like she'll somehow find a way. <laughs> yes, yes, that's wow. nice. Well, it, that's gorgeous. I I don't mind going next. Um, I'm gonna start with the reincarnation just because. Um, in um, Hindu uh, traditions, reincarnation obviously is part of you know the cycle of life and uh, reaching nirvana um, and you know returning to prana, um, and 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 so one thing, Becky, your you know your archetypal woman um, from your dad and from my dad, in in Hindu tradition, a woman because she can recreate life is actually way more advanced on the um, you know in, in dharma than than um than anyone else because she you know she has this capacity to recreate life and that is a godlike capacity so it is indeed so, indeed so so i do that is one of the wonderful things i think i love about the Hin, um hinduism and and if i think about being re reincarnated i i certainly think about um Kind of wanting to be reincarnated as um actually you know nothing something not so different from what i am i can't i can't i guess this is part of this coming to terms with who i am i i perhaps would like to you know be more in touch with the earth i think that would be the only thing that would change like i'd like to be somebody like a farmer or a you know somebody who works really in tandem with with growing things because i think mm. that's that's um i would like that to be in my entire life um, if i could make it happen wow. um so that's because i yeah i just love the idea of growing things and, and giving life in that way too um and for a past life i i can't say i've had any big um uh, um insights into it my mother claims that she has had multiple past lives and that she and her dad I mean, she and my dad were together in many of those past lives um as you know whether it was and all over the world and she can actually talk to you about where where they were and what the what the life was um so yeah no she's fascinating when she gets down that road but I was probably something very ordinary, like you know, somebody who worked in a in a factory, or you know, I, I don't have any in, in, in impression that I was uh, anything pretty 
very amazing in the past. <laughs> well, um, for me, I when I know you started speaking about women, I couldn't think of anybody in terms of past or future, but that wasn't female, that wasn't a woman, because and and wasn't black. Right. I, I've, I love the skin I'm in. I, I love the, everything about my identity. And so I believe that in the past life, I have been part of this wave of black women. Wow. And, and I, I find it really powerful and empowering, right? I, when I think about, I'm, I'm part of a chain of ancestors of black women. And then going forward, I'd, I'd like to be reincarnated as, again, a black woman. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I just, I, this is a hard question, Shalina. Hard question, because, because it's difficult, because I'm so rooted in myself in the here and now. Yeah. And because I, I really love everything about me in the here and now. Um, I just cannot imagine me before not being like me or me in the kids come not being like me. So past life is a black woman. Next life is a black woman still kicking ass and taking names. That's, that's <laughs> in the best of ways. In all the best ways. Now Amanda is going to tell us. <laughs> that I know. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if you are interested in the description of the podcast, you will find a link to our Patreon and you can subscribe to become a patron for as little as $2 a month. $2 a month, Amanda. $2. Um, and it goes up. So if you're able, I mean, um, obviously right now times are tough for lots of different folks. So we understand if you can't, but if you would like to support, we would obviously love that as well. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here and having this discussion. This is an amazing discussion. And I'm glad that we had that conversation at the end. That question always seems to bring out things and it's different every time. So that was wonderful. It was a great question, Shalina. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm really glad you asked it. It really got us thinking. Yeah, it did. Good. Um, so we want to thank you for being our guest today and we want to thank the listeners for listening. And if you have any questions at all, please email us at podcast at women at the center.com. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.